officially take a moment here to welcome you to Restoration Church. If this is your first time with us, we are glad to have you, whether that is in person or online or a combination of both. Some of you might be tweeting while I'm talking right now. Either way, we're glad to have you today. I want to mention a couple of <clears throat> important things before we actually jump into our, our time of teaching this morning. And that is in regard to, uh, like Abe just prayed this season, uh, lots, of, lots of things start going on this time of year, and we're very thankful to say that we're going to be able to do some things that we haven't been able to do uh, in years past. So if you'll sort of uh, sit here for a moment, this is a little bit of space in between our time of musical worship and teaching, where I highlight what we would call a community rhythms, which is one of the three steps, one of the three path uh, waypoints on our discipleship pathway, gospel, community, and mission. So I want to share a couple of things that are going on in the life of our body over this next month. So uh, first, we typically have a student's class that meets during or concurrently with this time of worship, but uh, every five weeks or so, we do not have that class so that students can be in this room to see what adult gathering adult worship is like. So just keep that in mind if you're a student, um, you're in here today with us and we're glad to have you. I also want to give you by way of just sort of a super important uh, piece of information. Uh, this week, Starting most likely Tuesday, as you know, every December I write what's called the Restoration Report. It sort of just talks a little bit about what's going on in the life of our church. So that is going to go out by email this week. It'll be on the table next week in paper form. And then we do realize that some of you um, maybe either don't check email because you don't have it, or what is more predominantly the American way is you have email and just don't check it. That's what most people do. So we're even gonna we're gonna mail these things out because of the scattered nature of the world right now. We're gonna do our best to get everybody a copy of this. So if by chance your email has changed or your address has changed, please let us know that. That's important too, especially as we get towards the end of the year. You know, we send out uh, contribution letters. So just make sure you're updated if uh, if you are not if you have moved or some sort of address change. That report's a very important piece of. Uh, history, if you will. I've written one every year uh, in the life of our church, and, and this year I, I actually think it was, I sort of reviewed the 10 years I've been writing them, and I think this is perhaps one of the most, and I, I would actually say, without any hyperbole, it's probably the most important one I've written to us because of the unique uh, nature and opportunities that I think lay before us as a church. So, report will begin uh, emailing this week and paper form uh, next week. I also want to mention, this is um, this might seem trivial, but it's really not. On your, on your way out, or maybe you even saw it on your way in, there's like a three by five-ish, give or take a inch or two or so, card on the table, the sort of sanitation information table there. And if you uh, if you do any shopping, especially through Amazon, we are registered as a nonprofit with that. And so you can actually, uh, as you shop, you, uh, you can generate revenue for restoration without it costing you anything. It's called Amazon Smile. And what we do is the instructions to sign up for that are pretty simple, but all those uh, monies that are collected through that, whatever you buy, a portion of it, they set aside and deposit directly into Restoration's um, bank account. So we use that in large part for benevolence in, in kids. So it's a very easy way for you to spend Amazon's money uh, to support mission and ministry. If you're not registered with a small nonprofit, the card is right back there for you to grab. Uh, you can do that very easily. Uh, even the stuff we purchase for our church, we buy through uh, Smile because that can add up over the course of the year. So it's a great and simple way to remember the significance of this season 
and the fact that there are, uh, it's usually a, a season of feast or famine for people. And uh, benevolence, uh, children's ministry, some of the things we do that really try to serve our neighbor, uh, we want to be mindful of, of the fact that we, we should be generous in all ways. Uh, that includes, you know, formally with the body, certainly in any areas of influence you might have uh, in your own life. So just keep that in mind, that card is on that table, you can grab it on the way out. Now, today, I'm, I'm actually, oh, actually, I completely forgot this. This is an important one. So for the past two years, we've been unable to have a Christmas Eve gathering. And this year, I want to say this with, uh, with enthusiasm, but also with a hair, bit of caution. Uh, we, uh, we actually have permission from the school to host a Christmas Eve gathering here on Christmas Eve. And so uh, we're pretty excited about that. We haven't been able to do one for quite some time. And I just want to say that that will uh, take place at 7 o'clock in about 40 to 45 minutes maximum. And we'll give you more information as the weeks roll around. That is on our calendar and prepared to happen, unless I say jokingly, but also sort of seriously, unless the world goes walking dead in the next two weeks, uh, we're going to really try our best to resume that, uh, that rhythm. And what we do that night is uh, it's, it's a kind of a reading of the Christmas story, but out of the normal way, with uh, musical worship interlaced in between uh, the, the readings. So it's a really wonderful time to sort of cement and focus your, your mind and your heart on the coming of Christ, because that is truly what we celebrate through the table of Advent, and obviously we celebrate this whole month as we move towards the 25th and really uh, deeply believe and celebrate the fact that Christ is coming. And so this is where we'll sort of segue into our teaching today. Starting next week, um, we're going to spend a few weeks actually talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, meaning the significance of his coming and why that actually matters. Why, why do we make such a big deal out of uh, Christ being born? There's some very compelling reasons why we do. And we're going to jump directly to that next week, but we're going to sort of prime what we're going to talk about next week by finishing this little teaching that we've been doing in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46. I'll read that to you here in a moment, but what I, what I want to highlight is that this is a, a, a text in the scripture that shows what the early church was doing. It was formulating the beginning, the beginning of some rhythms that we still participate in today. They're biblical rhythms that, that actually made the church viable and healthy, especially in these, in these early stages. And so today we talked about the importance of devotion and uh, truth, the apostles' teaching. We talked about the uh, importance of fellowship being mutual participation uh, with each other, not sort of a consumer-type philosophy, but really giving and taking as life goes on. We talked about the breaking of bread, meaning communion and prayer. And today we're going to talk about really what I want to call mission. This is the third step in our discipleship pathway, a gospel community mission. Simply that means that if we believe the truth of Jesus, the gospel, and we live it out in community, then there should be some form of compulsion for us to be on, on mission. And by compulsion, I mean it's very hard to reconcile a life that really knows Jesus that is not uh, concerned with the people in their life who do not know Jesus, or maybe those who do and, and are struggling. The, the pursuit of Jesus should, should create in us hearts that care for other people. And so mission is sort of the, the natural, it's, it's the answer of the equation. When truth and community is working properly, what tends to happen is we, we have a burden for other people. And that's why this time of year, uh, benevolence needs tend to be met. Uh, there's some interesting places we supported in the letter, uh, particularly in Honduras, financially this year. We've done some really great things as a church to be able to show that we care about people. 
and that's all in the letter. So make sure make sure you read it. But for today, what I want us to start thinking about is this concept of, of mission because it's established. Let, let me say established in the New Testament precedent in the way that Jesus comes to the earth. And so I'll read Acts 2, 42 through 46. Keep in mind, there's a little change here, at least for a few more weeks. We'll have some dialogue in, uh, points in between these sort of blocks of teaching that I gave you. I have a couple of questions I want to throw by you today, which I've really been enjoying. So keep that sort of in the back of your mind as I read this passage and then begin to talk about the mission of God and our responsibility to it. Acts 2, 42 through 46. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This is where we're going to sort of pick up today. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And here's the key statement. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, years ago, I was at a, and I mean years ago, this was before there even was a restoration. It was sort of like an embryonic idea and a 35-page, it really was a business proposal of how to start the church. But I was doing a training in Atlanta um, about church planning. And essentially, there were about 30 of us in a room, and everybody was asked to sort of highlight something the church should should be doing. Like, what do we think the church, the church should be doing? And there was a litany of things that came up. You know, teaching the Bible, praying, community, a lot of the things we've talked about. There's about 30 words on the list. Um, but the person that was instructing the class actually said, there's something that's sort of highlighted in the Bible on a regular basis that is missing from this list. Can any of you think of what that is? And nobody can answer the question. And he just wrote in a red marker, reproducing. Interesting. Reproducing, right? So, we have a lot of ideas about the church, about what we do and who we are. And when a group of guys that were all at various stages of church planning were asked to, to describe what a church should do, the idea of reproduction was not present in our vocabulary at that time. Even though we all had the desire to start a church, we sort of were maybe living that truth before we could formally understand it in our heads. But it's interesting when you think about that. The, Reproduction or the sharing, the proclamation of the gospel, bringing truth, uh, Jesus' truth to our neighbors and nations. This is a pretty significant responsibility in the Bible. And the reason we are here today, the reason other churches are here today, is because at some time in their history, they valued re reproducing. Generational discipleship, as Paul talks about in the, the pastoral epistles. You are here because of somebody who had a, a burden, a priority, to, to invest in you regarding your faith. You know, maybe some of us have like a, a personal word from God. I know that can happen. But the predominant way that we see people coming to faith and growing in faith is through other people. Uh, my story is no different. I was, uh, it's like it was about an eight-year run, give or take a little bit. But over eight years, two groups of people sort of put up with me. Not eight years meaning cumulatively, but eight years like at the beginning and the end. There were two groups of people that really spent some time uh, answering my my questions and putting up with my rigid skepticisms about, about faith. And so the fact that anyone here that is in Jesus is a beneficiary of this reality, is it's important to know that this is not just meant to be an individual responsibility. Uh, the church is a collective gathering of people. That's people. <coughs> so when we speak about mission, 
what we're talking about today is how, like, think about this. There's, this text ends with, with Luke telling us that God was adding to, the, to this body on a regular basis. The Lord was adding to them, those who were being saved, those who were genuinely, not there for awe and wonder, not there for signs and miracles, but they were actually being introduced to Jesus. And because of that, the early church began to grow into the global movement that we know it as today. And so what I want to talk about today is the mission of God according to the Bible. Because one of the unique, not unique, let me put it this way, one of the common things that we see throughout history is that uh, Christianity is, is often a vessel used to accomplish missions. And sometimes they're not so biblical. Like, if our faith has been hijacked perhaps more than any in the world when it comes to movements or ideas. Uh, there's no shortage of this. If you, if you look through every culture in history, what you'll find is there is a time and a place where an idea sort of kind of works with Christianity, but then what happens is Christianity is subordinated to that idea, and then the next thing you know, that idea is more important than Christianity. But Christianity is sort of the delivery system that's being used to, um, to portray truth. Here's a good example of this. It's, it might seem trivial, but I think it's substantial regarding our understanding of, of missionary production. Um, when I was in East Africa, I did some mission work with the Maasai, very tribal, I mean, literally tribal people, uh, a life-changing experience for me. But I met, I met some young men who, uh, who had found faith, and it was crazy to me that they, that they were pursuing Jesus, who we were brothers in, in Christ, and they were wearing their, their African garb with suit tops uh, on, on the top. And I couldn't understand that because I was thinking, well, this seems like an irregular thing when we're literally in the African bush. Like, I'm not joking. We were in the, like, where the wild animals are. That's where we were. And I started asking them, like, what their names were and why they were dressed like this. And they all had English names and were wearing Western clothing. And what happened here is, is the more I got to talk to them is you, you had a bit of a hangover from some unhealthy forms of evangelism that were taking place in that community. And what was happening was, as a person, after they found faith, it wasn't enough to find Jesus. They actually were then told to dress like a Westerner and to get a new name. So they would remove their, their African name and give them uh, uh, an American name. And that is a bit of an issue, because like no, nowhere in the Bible are you going to find, I mean, unless we're talking about like temple cubits or something, we're not really given a specific dress code for Christianity, right? We're told that we find faith. We, uh, our faith is an understanding of who Jesus is in the New Testament. So when we speak about mission, I just want to point out that, that uh, in a world obsessed with movements right now, some of them very valid, some of them not, what's happened is you can see times where Christianity is hitched to the tail of a movement, when truly Christianity is the movement in and of itself. And that's why I think it's important that we talk a little bit about, about what it means to um, to proclaim the gospel, to be faithful, to represent Christ in a world that oftentimes has very differing opinions or beliefs than uh, what the scripture teaches us. So, I come now to my first question this morning. If someone walked into this room right now, how would you explain to them what Christian mission, or the word we don't use, I use this word, but this is a word that people try to stay away from now because it has a negative connotation, unfortunately. Um, Keep in mind, the word is a negative, maybe the person using it was, but if someone walked into this room right now, how would you explain to them what Christian mission or evangelism is? What would you, what would you say that that is? I saw a guy in Fifth Avenue one time in Manhattan screaming at people with a bullhorn. Uh, that was his preferred form of evangelism. 
and I'm sure he got beat up before the night was over. Right? <laughs> uh, but that that evangelism, lots of there was lots a guy with a loudspeaker outside the Alamo in San Antonio all the time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. A lot, the, the There's Alamo. a big plaza right outside the Alamo, and there okay. was almost always a guy with a PA system preaching about you know everybody's going to go to hell and they should. Okay. The Alamo is actually a pretty big tourist attraction, so he had an audience, High but profile. they weren't super receptive. It's in tandem to this, have you ever been um, into land? There's, there's a street corner. <coughs> I take pictures of it every time. There was a person holding a like repent sign for Jesus, repent and believe, and then there's an atheist. They're there every time, uh, <laughs> right across the street that says, you don't have to believe in anything. And it's hilarious to me. It's because I'm sure they get along and they talk to each other. But uh, the first time I saw that, my mind was like blown. Because here is another form of, you know, evangelism, you might say. You have a person saying belief is important in Christ, and you have another person saying, no, belief isn't important at all. And they, they basically have the same idea you're talking about. There's a competing uh, truth narrative there. So so already we, we immediately jump into expressions of evangelism. I find this interesting. What what are what are some other ways we would describe evangelism, particularly to somebody that doesn't, that truly has a, a, a blank slate in what, what they know about it? I guess for, for me, I don't know. So Daryl brings up a critical, <clears throat> critical distinction that needs to be addressed, a very good one. You're talking about, let's just use the word evangelism, since that word is literally used in Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists. You first brought up the fact that there is a distinction between evangelizing, meaning uh, sharing our faith, the word and deed, when the opportunities present themselves, and the gift of evangelism. Okay? So... This is a critical thing for us to think about, especially as we start to talk about the fact that every Christian is a missionary. This is not a very common sentiment today, but if we really understand mission from the scripture's sake, what that means is missionaries are people that go to places, but they are also you. Every single person in Jesus is a, is a missionary because we all carry the light and the hope of his gospel, and this is true. And so the, the challenge with only seeing evangelism or mission as as the gifted job. For example, the, the, the probably the best known evangelist in this era that we have known is a guy named Billy Graham. See, it's already assumed that Billy Graham. Everybody said it. It sounded like mass for a minute. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, so everybody, everybody says Billy Graham, right? Um, so that's interesting. Billy Graham is a guy who evangelizes or evangelizes when he's alive, but also has the gift of evangelism. And people with the gift of evangelism, just like the gift of hospitality or teaching, they they have what I would say 
they have a peculiar, in a good way, uh, ability to do that. And that is because when God gives us gifts, spiritual gifts, Scripture teaches we at least get one. Every single person has at least one. It's sort of like we have an infusion of God's strength in that area that makes us incredibly uh, proficient at it. So, for example, uh, that, that does not mean that somebody with the gift of evangelism is excluded from the responsibility of being merciful, right? But what I would say is you, you would not want to take somebody with the gift of evangelism and then make them your care pastor. That does not mean that they can't make hospital visits and visit people. Uh, it just means that their primary gifting is not necessarily in that area. What you want to do, and we actually have quite a few of these people at our church, is you want to find people that have the gift of mercy, meaning they have this incredible ability to show and see areas of need where, where a person without that gift can, cannot. Uh, and that's one of the things I've always loved about our church is that the, the concept of restoration, of really seeing uh, holistic redemption between us and God through Christ and, and us and each other, our relationships, is a priority. So we want to highlight immediately that we might almost say that the gift of evangelism does not excuse people from uh, not evangelizing. But the second thing you brought up was that we want to recognize there's a diversity in evangelism, simply meaning Billy Graham is a way to evangelize. And it's a way, if we're going to be honest, that worked much more significantly, um, maybe in decades past than it does today. The first time I went to Brazil, excuse me, the second time I went to Brazil, uh, we were working with a very established, sound group of uh, Southern Baptists down there. And I was asked to lead a tent revival. And I, I kind of, I was going there to serve, but I kind of was laughing, like, tent revivals? This is like, like if I were to try to do this here in America, it, like, I'd probably have bottles thrown at me. So anyways, I went down there, and um, I had to write sermons that were translated through Portuguese, so a 20-minute or 25-minute teaching had to be 12 minutes so that we could work through translators. And, like, the first night there were 100 people there, and by the end of the week there were hundreds of people there. And what I learned that day, or that week, was that, there's, there's no singular or sort of mono way that God that gives us this gift, this ability. You really can be the type of person who's, who's comfortable standing in front of thousands of people teaching. Or you really can be the, per, the person who, uh, who nobody will ever know it, but you have sat and drank coffee and had suppers and lunches with more people than the world will ever know. And you have, you have brought Jesus' truth that way. So let's make sure as we begin this conversation... Uh, it's one very near and dear to my heart, uh, because I think it's so central to the church, that we don't ever forget that there are those with the gift of evangelism, so don't think you have to be Billy Graham to share Jesus, but then there are those who really evangelize through their unique abilities and their unique spheres of influence, simply meaning you all are in places I am not, and I am in places you are not, and that is why it is important that we recognize mission, or the fact that we see the byproduct of it here, we're going to back up a little bit here in a moment, the Lord is adding to their number. People are being saved. And what I want to talk about over these next weeks is what's going on in the middle there, that people are actually, before there really even is a church as we know it today, people are beginning to commit their lives to Christ, and it begins to be built. And that foundational idea, this idea of, of taking the gospel to the world, our neighbors, wherever, is sort of enunciated in the New Testament through Jesus, but it is not, it doesn't begin in, uh, in the New Testament. Does anybody remember what, what Israel's first, one of their primary commands was, what God had sort of set them apart to do? To be a, a blessing to the nations. 
That's the first thing that they're instructed to do. In other words, the light and life of God in heaven is now being revealed through the people of the Old Testament. That is one of their, uh, that is their ultimate aim, is to, is to bless in the name of God those there Yahweh, those that are around. And so I, I sat in a classroom time in seminary where uh, we, we had a dispute, somebody wrote a paper on mission, and they said that it didn't start until Jesus came around. And that's not true. I mean, if you look at Nineveh, uh, that's a great example where God literally sends Jonah to bring the message of repentance, and that's a pretty messed up story, because like God is ready to forgive Nineveh, but Jonah doesn't want it. He's like uh, totally hoping to get burned up in smoke and flame, right? So if you start actually reading the Old Testament through this lens, what you can see is that the people of God are interacting with other people, with other nations, and they are supposed to be declaring the, the love and the, the relationship they have with God. And so, excellent point. Uh, evangelism is a gift, it's a responsibility, and it is not a one-trick pony at all. There's many ways God can use it. Maybe one other um, one other thought on, on what Christian mission or evangelism is. So I grew up in the Wellsville Testament that everybody had to evangelize. And on Tuesday at 6 p.m., when I was an 11th grader, I went out with Rick. And we would knock on doors. And I, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think it is important to articulate your Right, to have an account where someone asks you to be able to, that is what it did teach me. I mean, there are some things that fell behind because we knocked, we left, we wrote a number on a whiteboard, and then I never saw that person ever again. It didn't really work. But one thing I think in my life, I'm a nurse when I work, and then I homeschool my children. So I'm in a peculiar place where if I go to work, I can't really share my faith or talk about Jesus or politics, right? like 101 healthcare, right? So nobody wants your doctor doing that or your nurse, your healthcare doing that. So when There's I go prohibitions in, in the workplace on that. That's I would yes, say that's, for yeah, sure. That's so when I go in, issue. I am deeply burdened and I put God before me that I will be aware of every opportunity he gives me, whether it's to say I can pray for you or whatever. I, I don't have time to do long conversations or to do F-A-I-T-H, you know. But I, but I pray that I'm always aware. And I do the same with my daughters now. Like, I know that they are believers and they're in a Christian home, but I still pray every morning that I will be aware of the opportunities. And I think that's the one biggest thing in my life that's missing, maybe others, is we have to be aware of the opportunities. We have to go about our day asking God to show us. We don't have to always make them happen. But like God, if my neighbor who is a sheriff and who's like literally getting shot at a couple times a year, he's in these big things. Like we can totally present that when it comes up. Like, man, we prayed for you today. I heard you were in this raid or whatever. Or I just think there are things we have to be, we have to be prepared. But we have to ask God daily to show us and enlighten us. Yeah, so there's... Big enough things, but a big thing. Daryl, big enough. Just, as you said, something interesting this week for me, uh, there was an AT&T rep in that my wife got hooked in. Oh. I say that, and I'm, you'll hear my full picture here. Um, they so can be pretty aggressive. Yeah. I go through PJs like a New York Giant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a roof. I don't need a cell phone. No, that's right. <laughs> 
then yes, we got incredible deal for where we needed. But I was talking to this guy, I said, so what is different about you? Are you an AT, are you an actual ATT guy? Are you just like it would be in the store? And he says, well, sort of, but hopefully I'm better. You know, and I'm processing that right here as, you're as we're talking in relationship to church. Here's the AT&T store. It's there. I can go there. I know that I can go there. But this guy, and he used a term who's really interesting when I was talking about this. He said, well, I just plant seeds. Mm. And in his mind, with my wife was the planting of a seed and all of a sudden. And I, and I really look at that picture and go, well, here's the church. We're here. And we say, oh, y'all can come. But then are, are we out there also? You know, the, the, the bolt dam. It was just really interesting how he was talking. And again, the fact that I walk by these guys all the time. Yeah. But the moment I stopped to talk to him, how much opportunity there I was talking about Jesus. And thinking, how many people do we pass that are sitting there saying, would you please come talk to me? They are literally saying, come talk to me, and we walk past. When in actuality, if we, was, if we took the minute to stop and let them give us their sales pitch, they would then also be listening to what we have to say. So it's really kind of challenging that I, I'm sitting there going, I would walk past you a thousand times. And then realizing God in that moment was letting Jesus be part of our conversation. But it was just kind of that, here's the store, here's the place, but I'm just here planting seeds. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting correlation of a business model with what you're saying about who we are yeah. as a church. So, so both of you are bringing up something very interesting. And sentness, which is sort of what you are talking about, uh, you get that word literally from John 20 where, you know, we read God sent Jesus to the world. He sends us into the world in the same way God sent Christ. So there, there's almost two, there's two methods we're talking about here. And both are, are actually okay. So, uh, Corinne, my wife, brought up what is historically known as transactional, uh, transactional evangelism. And I actually remember, I think I did some faith business with Rick, and he bought us ice cream. Definitely a bonus. I don't know if I would love Pete in Jesus' name or the ice cream more, either way, but it was the ice cream. It was the ice cream. So, pro propositional evangelism. Uh, or transactional evangelism, it's not necessarily a bad thing. What we find is that even seasons of the world, certain things work differently. Like tent revivals still work in certain parts of rural Brazil, but not necessarily um, in other parts of the world where there might be different obstacles that we're dealing with to help people understand who Christ is. And the premise of, of transactional uh, sort of evangelism or propositional evangelism is that it begins with a question. And for about 75 years, in one form or shape, the question was, if you were to die tonight and go to hell, if you were to die tonight and stand before Jesus, excuse me, like, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Okay? So that, that's the premise of, of a, that's a perfect example of what we call a transactional or a propositional evangelism. The proposition is, um, if you're before God and you do this, is this going to happen? Now, there was a time, I think, when that and, and still might be places where that works, maybe even in unique ways, but I find now, if we really understand the world we live in, if you were to ask somebody that question, they would be like, hell, that's ridiculous. Like, I don't even believe in that stuff. And so right away what happens is, the premise of your whole conversation there, it, it falls apart. I'm not saying there is no hell. I'm just saying that if you're trying to get somebody to 
make a decision based on a proposition, it, the, the fallacy of this is that once the proposition fails, the conversation is over. That is sort of the traditional Wednesday night evangelism that we see in the American church. Daryl brings up something else about sentence, which is sort of, and both of these are valid, um, is when we're sort of mindful, we're out and just, there's a recognition of the fact that everywhere we go, God is already working. And if we actually pay attention to that, you've probably heard me say a little intentionality goes a long way when it comes to uh, sharing our faith through word and deed. And we're going to get into particulars of what that looks like over these next weeks. Um, when, when we're aware of that, what happens is God really does start showing us people, places, and, um, and opportunities. So Corinne brought up our neighbor. Uh, he's real high up in the sheriff's department. He's become a pretty good friend of mine. He's a great neighbor. And he's in a coma. And, uh, and I, I'll say sometimes, like before he goes out, say, say, man, I'll be praying for you. And, and he'll say things like, I'll take whatever I can get. <laughs> you know, like, he's in the coma, but I'll take the prayer too. And, so, uh, and we've actually had some really neat conversations over the past 10 years about all kinds of stuff. And so sentence simply means that the, the premise of mission is not God demanding people to walk to him. Everything we see, God reveals himself to Israel. God reveals himself to us in Jesus. What you see in the Bible is this sort of relentless revelation in pursuit of humanity. And so there has to be a part of, of how we talk to people about faith that, it, that is sort of mindful of the fact that when we leave this room, maybe even in this room, there are people that God is going to put in our path and we're going to have unique opportunities to, um, to talk about. Or sometimes, you know, the, the gospel is, is proclaimed through word and deed. What I have found is that at some point you have to get to both. But nonetheless, the idea is that, you know, it might really start with acts of service. It might really start with you really caring for somebody and then just wanting to know why people do that. I'll, I'll never forget, um, I was talking to my dad. This was like literally in 2005. Um, after Hurricane Katrina, like there was so much generosity in our lives. Like, uh, like somebody gave us a car. Long story there, uh, uh, amazing. And he was like, How, "Why do people do this?" And I was like, "Because they love Jesus, Dad." I couldn't give him another answer. You know, like the truth was, it's like it was astounding. He was like head blown by the reality of of the generosity because we had lost everything. And that's a great example where. That was, man, a, tr a tremendous conversation. But it shows us that God is doing things all the time in all areas of our world. And a lot of times I think we are fearful of doing something because we think we have to, like, we forget that there actually is a verse Paul writes where some, you know, some seed, some water, some reap the harvest. We, we don't have to seal the deal in a seven-minute conversation. We can recognize that for a lot of us, we're in the middle of a pendulum, meaning, like, if you were to really look at your life, what you can see is a pendulum of the way God worked. And then at some point, you said, yeah, like, it's Jesus God. Let's check this out, right? That's how it was for me. Some people have a more sort of like in-the-moment thing. But the reality is, is it's very likely when you came to faith, it was not because somebody said something to you one time. You can see a lineage of history of people that have really, uh, from all different walks of life, that were committed to talking to you about uh, about the Lord. And so some get to reach the harvest. Some get to... Baptize their buddy. Others get to plant a seed, you know? Uh, and and some, some are in the middle, maybe where the seed's been planted, but there's some real objections, and, and they want to be able to work those out with the person. And that's the thing that I value most about our church, is that we, we recognize the harvest field is very broad and has different categories of people. And we want them all to know that whether you are, you know, objection, full-blown believer, or somewhere in the middle, we want to be able to converse with you. It's important. And so I want to read this to you. And then we'll start to wrap up. It's amazing. Like, I had three questions today, but we'll get maybe through 
the, the mission of God. There's lots of, lots of sort of definitions that describe this, but I'll read a very well-known one from a missiologist. His name is Van Sanders, and he's a, a professor of mission at Truett McConnell University. And a missiologist, you might not know this, maybe you do, but there actually is um, a theological field of discipline or study on mission, meaning like missiology is no different than any other ology, right? When we say theology, ology, you know, from the Greek basically means the study of, theo, theos means God, right? So uh, missiology means the study of mission, the study of the way God has let the world know who he is and what our responsibility is. And so he writes this, and this is one of the better definitions because it's very practical. He says, the mission of God, uh, when kept in the context of the scriptures, now that's key because we just talked about this, there's lots of mission in the world that might not even be biblical, but it's proclaimed in the name of Jesus. When kept in the context of the scriptures, authoritative truth, right, apostles teaching, the mission of God emphasizes that God is the initiator of his mission to redeem through the church, this is a special people for himself, from all of the peoples of the world. He sent his son for this purpose, and he sends the church into the world with the message of the gospel for the same purpose. I'll read that again. New Testament mission. When kept in the context of the scriptures, the mission of God emphasizes that God is the initiator of his mission to redeem through the church a special people for himself from all of the peoples of the world. He sent his son for this purpose, and he sends the church into the world with the message of the gospel for the same purpose. And now, I'll say this, and then we can sort of begin to wrap up, but when we hear a definition like this, which is based in scriptural truth, observations of the way God has worked in both Testaments, you know, God comes into the world, speaks to Abram, God comes into the world for Jesus, why, why is Christmas, for the New Testament believer now, so significant? Why, why is it important that we don't get sort of wrapped into massively great electronic sales, like they're bad, you know, uh, but why is it important that we really have a, a deep and meaningful understanding of, of this event that we celebrate every year? Why, based on mission, what do we learn from Jesus' incarnation about mission? What does he show us? What's the practical application of that? Well, it shows us that God really means it. Okay. So God, God is as committed in his deeds as he is his words. Exactly. So like a, a passage like John 3, 16, very common one, where we read about God loving the world so much that he, he let Jesus die for the sins of the world, right? In order to be uh, reconciled to him. That's a great example where word and deed, right? We see that there's a written and one one spoken word of God, and then that is actually exemplified through action. Uh, Jesus... Jesus is the tangible example of God's desire for us to uh, to know him. What else? Well, I think he sent him a normal baby because who doesn't love a little baby? He could have God could have sent him as a grown man and we wouldn't have paid any attention to him. <laughs> and do and doing that, he's our only way to get to heaven. Sure. So you bring up two it's sort of funny, but it's true. He comes to earth as, as an infant, you know. Um, Lisa says, because if he was a grown man, we probably would have ignored him. Everybody loves babies, right? Uh, but there's also something significant about that. We won't have time to deal with that today. That's in the weeks that follow. But one of the reasons Jesus is born in infancy is to satisfy the reality of what it meant to be human. So what we find is that part of what we think about, there's two major thrusts of the incarnation, that God is fully man and God is fully human. And 
these, excuse me, God is fully human and golly, Jesus is fully human and fully God. And each one of these, these things, these sort of truths, which really, I'm talking about them in categories, but they're one and the same when it comes to Christ. There's something super significant about each one. I'll give you the spoiler, but we're going to discuss this in detail. In order for Jesus to be our high priest, the scripture tells us he identifies in every way as human. So for him to be born a man, man, he would have missed out on some of the most formative and troubling years of life, you, right? Um, that's incredibly important. But we also know that he's fully God. And that's important because only God can satisfy his own, his own demands for how to deal with the problem of, of sin. And so every one of these things really matters. Every, every idea about um, who Jesus is and what he did the implications are substantial. Like, we don't even get to Easter um, without, without this. And what I would say is when we fully grasp what this means, it creates a profound way of living for Jesus and, a, and a, maybe a, a newer or deeper or more meaningful understanding of the level of love, care, and affection that God, that God has for us. So maybe one or two more ways that the coming of Christ through sort of exemplifies word and deed, maybe gives us some examples some life application and how to how to speak and live, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. One or two more. I think the concept of God with us is also really strong as a, a drawing to the Lord. Like, he didn't stand off in the distance and, like, say, oh, well, you pitiful people come over here. He came to us. He lived among us. He came close so that we could get to know him, so that we could see, um, not we, you know, Directly, but we now, looking back at, at what the early Christians who knew him physically shared, and I mean, he was a real, tangible being that they were able to see, to hear, to touch, um, to, to commune with in person, and he was just like us in so many ways, and he came to us. Okay, so you highlight, like Ben Sanders says, the initiation, the initiator, excuse me, is Jesus. And you are you know, referring to that great word, Emmanuel, God with us. And, you know, if you read John 1, the, the metaphor behind that is uh, literally the language speaks of Jesus tabernacling amongst us. That's like what the idea communicates. And it's pretty beautiful when you think about it that in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, obviously, is where people go to meet God, right? Uh, and the, the fulfillment of Jesus, what he does is he basically says, hey, uh, now you come to me to be God. And by come to me, I mean literally, like, you walk right up to him. That's so it goes in the first century world, his disciples and his, his followers. So you're right, his, his relational closeness to us is significant. It, it really is a distinguishing mark in many ways of many of the other world religions, is the fact that, um, that God is, I, there's actually big words for this, I'll spare you them, but God is like, not just infinitely close to us, he's in us. Meaning like he's so close to us that, that we can sense him and read him and know about him in the word and live for him. Yet he's so utterly far from us in the same breath, right? Transcendence and imminence is what we call this, that he's God. He's like, he is like capital G God. Like Moses looked at him and got radiated for a month. He was glowing just by catching a glimpse of his backside, right? So you have these two poles in God that he is sort of like, he has the ability to be the most narcissistic thing ever. Yet, what he expresses himself to us in is as a human who identifies with our struggles and our sufferings, and, uh, and not just identifies, but laments with us, and 
and loves us and shepherds us through it. And that's why I think the incarnation, it, it does us well to really understand the significance of it. And we have, I mean, literally just hit the tip of the iceberg on this day. We've talked about what mission is uh, and how it's rooted certainly in the uh, actions of the Old Testament and the actions of Jesus in the New Testament. Next week, we'll talk about a missionary, meaning we're going to move now from this, the theological reality of this to the practical application of uh, what, what does it mean if there is a mission, which has been firmly established, uh, then what does it mean to be a missionary? Is this just a select group of people whom have this office and, you know, we, we send them overseas? Or is there a broader term that we need to be thinking about uh, when it comes to mission? And so, you know, the answer is yes. Uh, it's both It's both and. And I promise you next week we will, um, in detail, uh, start looking at that. And that's where we'll tie this into the, uh, the Acts 2 text. Because there's some incredible things. If, Tencent version of this is that they are doing things that are catching the attention of people. They're caring for each other. There's one place where they're meeting the needs of each other. They're, they're, they're with each other. There's a sense of love that they have for each other. In other words, there's a genuine community there. And it is all these things that, um, that are prerequisite. God is using these actions to, to bring people to himself. The people are looking at this thinking, like, this looks pretty great. Like, I'd like to understand what it is, and consequently, the Lord adds to their number daily. And so we're going to talk a little bit about church growth, but from a very biblical perspective, and how how uh, how growth looks when it comes into the context of making uh, disciples. So, but that's it. But listen, if you want to stay another hour here, we can do a little raise, we'll go through this whole thing. But um, I'm hungry, so so uh, this is an executive order that we're going to move into our response time. Uh, I, I really would encourage you to read Acts 2. This week, 42 to 46, and it would do you well, too, to read the, the infancy narratives, uh, particularly the, the coming of Christ narratives. So, because those are the two poles we're going to be bouncing back and forth. One is, a, one is the, the, the sort of origin of when he comes, when we read about the Bible, and then this is the, the practical reality of what happened. Like, the end game is really the beginning here. What we're reading about is the first portions of the early church, but this is rooted deeply in what Jesus does um, in his coming to, uh, to the world. So, um, a couple of things I'll mention to you before we have a, sort of a brief time of response and contemplation. Uh, if you have any questions about what we've discussed today, or objections, or maybe even things you, you wish that I would have addressed, please uh, let us know that. This is something that is really valuable to us. Um, a lot of times, you know, I'm covering a lot of stuff, but I'm not covering everything. So, if I miss something you want to hear me talk about, let us know that on those cards. If you, uh, your connection cards are in your seats. You can also email or call the office. There's a multitude of ways you can talk to us uh, about what we're doing. If you have questions about life or faith, if you have a need or you need to be prayed for, if you don't understand at all who Jesus is, or maybe you're in a rough patch with them, um, know that this church, our church, exists far beyond this time we've spent here this morning. We want you to know that you're supported in everything that you uh, that you do. And so we want you to love Jesus well, live in community. If you have questions about our church, this is also a great chance for you to uh, uh, submit that card to us if you're online. You can use those tools either through Facebook or our website. But either way, don't leave this place. Uh, if God has spoken to you this morning, if Jesus has said something to you um, about a next step, don't don't leave this place without getting in touch with somebody to, to help you process that because it's very, very important. Um, this is also the time where we, uh, as gospel partners or members, if you're a partner or a member of Restoration, you know that we have the responsibility. We've made a commitment to support the work of restoration through our tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting, we simply ask that you do as the Lord leads. If you're here in person, 
already can get online, but there's a multitude of ways to do that through the website. Uh, this is also the time when we receive that. So whether it's a gift or a connection card, a contact card, uh, if you would, after this time of reflection, able to just play something for you to think, pray, and process. Use this time to, to let God speak to you about what your next days look like, how you're going to apply what we talked about today, and, and live in the world. You can put all that stuff in these towers as you exit after this time and the benediction. But through these remaining moments we have, spend some time truly dialing your heart into the voice of Jesus. Peace.